friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I can't thank you enough for joining us again this week for what I hope will be a conversation with consequences for you. Good consequences, of course. Today, I have a big treat for myself, and I hope also for you, I will be interviewing my own husband later on in the show. He's written a book. Um, it's actually his second book. His first book was a medical textbook. He, he is a medis- he's a doctor and a lawyer. But this book is called Speaking for the Unborn, 30-Second Pro-Life Rebuttals to Pro-Choice Arguments. What he's done is he's put together a kind of handbook where every important argument made by the pro-choice side um, has the best rebuttals to it, nicely listed and short, pithy talking points. And this is wonderful because the point that he makes in the beginning of the book, and this is absolutely true, all of us know this, is that we get these short um, little bursts of time in which we can change somebody's mind. So you're standing in an elevator and somebody, somehow, a stranger or someone you barely know, Um, finds out you're pro-life and says to you, but wait, what about cases of rape and incest? Well, this book has the quick, short answer that you wish always was on the tip of your tongue and and usually you think about it. This is how it happens to me. You think about it after the person leaves the elevator and you say, oh darn, I knew what I should have said. Now you'll be prepared. So we'll have him on the end of the show. But before that, my colleagues at the Catholic Association Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire will be co-hosting with me. Well, I like to say co-hostessing with me. We're going to be talking about the March for Life, which um, happened this week. It's the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Hopefully this is the last March in which Roe v. Wade will be actually uh, the law of the land. We are praying for that. And we're also going to talk about the harms of pornography on young people. Billie Eilish did everybody a favor when she spoke um, very openly about her pornography addiction um, since the age of 11. Very, very sad. Welcome to the show, my friends. Hey, it's great to be with you. This is exciting that we have the three of us on the show this week. This week is the anniversary of Roe v. Wade in Washington, D.C., in our nation's capital by the March for Life. This is something that's been going on for many, many years. This year, the march has special significance because the march was kicked off by by Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision in 1973, which left America, so many people in America, really wondering how to fight back against something that was decided from the top down from the Supreme Court 
So nine people <laughs> decided for the entire country that abortion was legal for the 40 weeks of pregnancy. This left so many people in the United States, you know, questioning so much about how to return to, to that issue and, and somehow win back this terrible loss that we had all suffered because all of us suffered this loss, whether male, female, born, unborn. It's a, it's a huge loss for everybody in the country or was Roe v. Wade. And this year, this could be our last March under the Roe v. Wade judicial decision. That's right, Gracie. And the funny thing about the march is it's it, we're commemorating such a tragedy and it's such a sad occasion. But at the same time, the march is always such a joyful occasion. And particularly this year, we all have this new hope and it's a well-founded hope that the Supreme Court might finally overturn Roe versus Wade. So I think the march this year, there's just such a different tone. One of the things that I've really been giving a lot of thought to is this question, are we ready? Is the pro-life movement, our pro-life Americans, our Catholic Americans really ready to have Roe versus Wade actually overturned? And we know that that simply returns the decision to the states and some states will ban abortion. Other states will continue very permissive abortion through nine months of pregnancy. But it really presents a daunting challenge for those of us who care about unborn children and their mothers to ask, have we built this culture of life that St. John Paul II called for over 25 years ago in Evangelium Vitae? And are we really prepared to accompany mothers in need and to welcome their babies into the world? Maureen, I'll give you my opinion quickly, but I really want to hear what Ashley has to say about this. Um, she just wrote a piece uh, that came out this week in USA Today, which was right on point. But I think that we've made a lot of progress in the last few decades in changing minds and hearts. I know that, for instance, in what I do in, in fetal ultrasound, we've had a lot of advances in the idea that unborn children are children, they're people, they're humans. This is a, a scientific established reality that everybody can acknowledge. And that's been fantastic. But I don't think we're ready with our strategy on how to get the states, each and every different state, to establish the, the proper regulations around abortion, which, of course, are we're going to be different depending on each state. But we have to be really ready at the state level to attack this next problem. What do you think, Ashley? Well, this is kind of a point that I also made in my article, and I think we're all agreeing that if Roe v. Wade does fall, it's really the beginning, not the end of our work. And, and certainly, you know, I would agree that we've made so much progress over the last several decades, both in terms of changing hearts and minds, in terms of maybe laying the foundation for like a pro-life infrastructure, a pro-life society. You know, I think that the hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent by these crisis pregnancy centers to to help meet women with their very real physical needs is, is just one piece of that puzzle. But I was out to dinner with a friend the other night, and we were talking about this case, and, and she said, you know, there's like 60-something thousand abortions every year in Missouri, which is the state where this case is originating from. And she was like, what are we going to do with all those babies? <laughs> that just gets to the question of, are we ready? You know, I think we're up for the task, but it's going to be a very sort of seismic moment. That's right. I think the, the construction of a culture of life is still very much a work in progress. And, you know, on the one hand, we have the, the pro-life movement immediately responded after Roe versus Wade. And, and now there are over 3,000 crisis pregnancy centers around the country. And the Catholic Church has led in these efforts, of course. But if Roe is overturned, the need will really skyrocket, I think. And anyway, so I have this piece in National Catholic Register this week about how the church is once again leading in anticipation in 
creating this culture of life. And they, the Catholic Church has launched a new initiative called Walking with Moms in Need. And if you haven't heard about this at your parish, it's really important that you look into it because it's a nationwide but parish-based effort. And it's supposed to be sort of a church-wide response to mothers and children in need, trying to engage everybody in the pews to help build a culture of life in a very kind of comprehensive and practical way. And because the Catholic Church as an institution is so fantastic at providing charitable care, that we as individuals sometimes can be a little lazy or relying on the church or relying on just our donations to support these efforts. But this Walking with Moms in Need initiative is really to engage the individual people in the pews to figure out how can we reach out to mothers in need. So if you have a doctor in the parish, if you have a social worker in the parish, if you have someone who works at a food bank or teaching to find spots at Catholic schools, these sorts of things. So so it it's um, this effort, Walking with Moms in Need, it, it not only sort of engages Catholic charities and Catholic hospitals and schools, but individual people in the pews to kind of walk in friendship with these mothers in need. And there's a whole communications component to this effort. If a parish kind of signs up to do this, the diocese will send a sign. They, they want all parishes across the country to have a roadside sign that's visible to everybody driving by saying, if you're pregnant and in need, please come into our parish and so that people know that parishes aren't you know these places of judgment but rather places of help so these signs are to invite pregnant women to seek help at the parish i really like that that there's a that the signs uh, will be placed outside i i think that um I know as a Catholic that uh, we Catholics are very open uh, to life, not only ourselves and our marriages, but also to unexpected life and, and other people. That, that And I know that we, we have this, um, this is something we should preserve. We have an openness and a, and a welcoming attitude to babies. That's right. I would encourage all of our listeners to ask your pastor about this program. And you can check out the website, Walking with Moms in Need. It, it's a really well-organized program program. It, it's really turnkey. I mean, they give you sample bulletin announcements, sample emails to send out, sample homilies for the priests, because often our priests don't really know how to talk about some of these issues. So That's so important, um, Maureen, because in, I know from working in the parish as a volunteer, there's so many things to do and so few hands to do it. You know, I do think, though, that as we await this major decision from the Supreme Court, the pro-choice side is really going to dial up the histrionic because they want to make everybody think the sky is falling. But, you know, if we look at what's happened in Texas, where basically the Supreme Court didn't stop a bill that's basically made almost all abortions after six weeks illegal, the sky hasn't fallen. And one thing that Texas did, and I hope that other states follow suit to this question of what next, is they earmarked tens of millions of dollars to go to crisis pregnancy centers. And so how wonderful that we have these thousands upon thousands of centers that are already there. And, you know, states that do step up in the wake of a hopefully a good ruling <clears throat> in the Dobbs case um, can look to that model of saying, you know, instead of sending all this money to these abortion chains that, you know, take frightened women and slaughter their children, you know, we can redirect that money to centers that give women an authentic choice and, and help them after. I mean, that was one of the things that I was so struck by when we did an amicus brief in the Supreme Court case having to do with uh, the rights of crisis pregnancy centers a couple of years ago was how much they do for women 
well after they've had their babies, you know, um, helping them to get education, job training, get back on their feet, detox from from drug addiction. Um, those are the places that are really giving women true choices and a path forward to flourish themselves and as moms. Ashley, you mentioned the rhetoric of the abortion lobby, and a lot of us have been paying close attention to the strategy of the abortion lobby because they have been working overtime to find ways to circumvent any new pro-life state laws that may go into effect if Roe is indeed overturned. And one of the things that's being proposed is for the Biden administration to put abortion clinics in federal office buildings where states don't have jurisdiction. What? So imagine having your post office, for example, being sort of sectioned off to include a federally operated abortion clinic. What? Or th- they're talking <laughs> about mobile abortion trucks on federal land. So imagine a mobile abortion truck at a federal park. And of course, the abortion lobby is making all kinds of plans to make online mail order abortion pills widely available. Wait, so Maureen. The- Maureen, let me stop yeah. you because I need to. I need you to elaborate a little bit because you really flabbergasted me. You mean on a federal site, the laws say you're in Texas and there is a six-week a ban of, on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. You could bring a truck onto the post office grounds and do abortions through forty weeks. Is that what you're trying to say? The abortion lobby is busy making plans for a post-Roe world. So they are brainstorming. They're saying we have to be creative. We have to find a way to get around these onerous, quote-unquote, onerous state laws banning abortion. So they are coming up with all kinds of creative legal approaches. We saw the Texas ban on abortion was a creative legal Mm -hmm. approach. (laughs) Some people think it was a good idea. Some people are not so sure. But in any event, the abortion lobby is getting very creative and floating all sorts of ideas to continue a regime of abortion, to continue preying upon vulnerable women in the event that Roe is overturned. And that's why I think we as a pro-life movement and as a church really need to be working overtime ourselves and seeing how else we can step up our game to create that culture of life. Because the, the fight you're the describing fight for hearts and minds will be as more important than ever. And you know, it's so sad because when you have a state where abortion is being more regulated, that's because the citizens of the state voted for that. I mean, that's what the people want, right? So people in California, I guess, love abortion. People in New York love abortion. People in Vermont. But people in Texas and Florida and other states don't love abortion. Like that, that's our will as citizens. The point of overturning Roe v. Wade or what will actually happen does at least at a minimum give give a say back to the people on this issue. I think so much of our division in this country has been because people want a say in an issue of extraordinary moral consequence. And I, I'm sort of cautiously optimistic that once that is returned to the people, that they, when they feel like they actually have a stake in this and that this just hasn't been stripped away from them and is being decided by nine robed individuals in a white marble hall, that they'll engage in a way towards the right thing. At least I'm cautiously optimistic about that. Well, I hope you're right, Ashley. And Maureen, you mentioned another thing that we have to be very aware of, which is the push uh, for chemical abortion. So early abortion through through drugs. And we uh, we did a show on this a couple weeks ago with a doctor who's very informed on this. One of the one of the OBGYNs at the the American Association for Pro Life OBGYNs, a fabulous group. 
And she really described a terrible situation where the pro-abortion you know, lobby, where Planned Parenthood and all their minions are pushing to just make chemical abortion drugs ubiquitous and so easy to, to get. I mean, a couple clicks on the internet and they arrive at your door, <laughs> delivered express right that day on Prime. And that is really terrifying because we're, we're going back to the back alley coat hanger abortion, basically. We, you know, one of the reasons abortion was legalized ostensibly is because abortion was dangerous when it was being done in a non-legal way, right? Like under under the radar, but that's where we're going again. Right, and we know that there are serious potential physical harms that can come from, you know, teenagers essentially performing abortions on themselves with these mail order abortion drugs, but not, not to mention the psychological impact of kind of frightened women in the most vulnerable of situations by themselves in their bathroom, you know, having an abortion on their own. It, I mean, it's so tragic to imagine, but this is this is the future of what we're looking at. And we really need to be thinking very hard about that and praying about it, of course. And I think that it goes to show how much they lie about safety, that that's really a concern um, because, you know, anybody who cared about the safety of women would make sure that anything like this, especially a super strong medication, would come along with informed consent, a consultation with the doctor. But our culture just doesn't care about safety. They don't care about protecting women. And if I change topics a little bit, they don't care about protecting children. You know, I was, like many people, I saw the headline a couple weeks ago where the singer Billie Eilish talked about being exposed to pornography at 11 years old. And I think she said it was violent pornography. And there was a great article in USA Today just this week um, by somebody talking about um just the sort of frightening statistics about how frequently and how young children are exposed on the internet to pornography. And I know, Maureen, that you've written quite a bit about how parents can better protect their children. But, you know, I think we're kind of walking around with blindfold on, blindfolds on um, when it comes to children have access to, especially with um, the pro proliferation of, of smartphones and iPads and and I think the thing that sort of scared me the most in the USA Today article was the author pointed out that we're hearing from people who are 18, 19, 20 now about being exposed to pornography. But these were people who were exposed before 55% of kids had smartphones. So what's happening now to kids in a culture where just about everybody has a smartphone? So what's happening now in a culture where more than half of America's kids have smartphones and are regularly using them on these sort of platforms like TikTok? You know, what are they experiencing and seeing? Let me connect this back, Ashley and Maureen, to the, what we were talking about, which was abortion originally, because when abortion was legalized, what it did was it let this genie out of the bottle and, and you know, sexuality used to be contained or tried, we tried to contain it within marriage because it led to illegitimate pregnancies um, or pregnancies out of wedlock, illeg illegitimate children. And this was a devastating blow, right, to, to the child, to the, to the mother. And then abortion came along at the backstop to, to contraception. And there was this huge flowering of sexuality, right? Like sex all the time of any kind because sex had no consequences, supposedly. So now if Roe v. Wade gets gets um, put aside, we may have to re-scramble all of that. And one of the reasons, one of the things we may have to re-scramble is this terrible addiction to pornography that's, you know, just the, maybe not addiction, but the way that pornography is so pervasive everywhere. 
You know, that kind of hypersexualization of our culture in the most vulgar and degraded ways. I think that's a really important connection that you make there because this is the prevalence of pornography is literally rewiring the brain mm -hmm. of an entire generation of children. And it's on something that is so integral and related to our ability to flourish as human beings mm -hmm. and our ability to form families in our future. You know, family is the most basic unit of society, right? So we are messing with fire here when we are rewiring children's brains to have these warped, distorted, harmful views of sexuality. And it's not just a lot of people, you know, think it's the boys who are affected. And that is true. But girls are affected, too, with these warped expectations of what is expected of them in a sexual relationship and what they can or cannot say no to in a sexual relationship. It's incredibly frightening. And so much of it does come through the smartphone and the various social media apps. And if there is any parent who has not read the Wall Street Journal Facebook files where they do exposés of, I mean, it's not just Facebook, Instagram, but, you know, it includes TikTok and um, all these other social media apps, Snapchat too. So I argue in this national review piece that I wrote that once you let the smartphone genie out of the bottle, it's nearly impossible to contain. So I urge parents, you know, don't sit around waiting for big tech to start regulating themselves don't wait around for the politicians to kind of come up with some solution that may or may not work. But parents, you have the power to say no to your children. And once you, it's actually so much easier on the parents to kind of just say no and put this off until they're much, much older and have far more maturity to handle these things and far more ability of far more self-mastery to be able, you know, if a kid can't even make their bed in the morning, how on earth are they going to overcome smartphone addiction? So I argue that instead of sort of letting this beast into your house, just keep the beast out entirely. Because once the beast is in, you are going to be wrestling with that beast every day. You're going to be fighting your child over their screen time and what their, you know, which apps they can have and who they're talking to. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, the solution is for parents to to just monitor their children's online activity. Maybe if you have one child and lots of time on your hands, <laughs> I've, n I've never met a parent who has a lot of time <laughs> on their hands, but if you have a lot of time on your hands, maybe you could adequately monitor your child's online use. And probably not even because chances are your child is more tech savvy than you are. So, you know, forget about it. If you have a bunch of kids to, to adequately monitor their online activity is nearly impossible. So I argue just put it off because there are all kinds of alternatives. I mean, your kid can have a phone. There, there's a phone called the pinwheel. There's a phone called the light phone. My teenagers have had Gab Wireless, which works just fine for them. It's really just a phone and texting. And, you know, some of them have maps so that they can, you know, once they get their driver's license can drive around. But and it is hard on them in one sense, because they can be sort of left out of some of the social chatter. But mostly it's kind of social chatter that you're kind of happy that they're left out of, you know, that you really don't want them in on in the first place. And, you know, I tell people both of my daughters were elected by their peers, senior class president. And neither of them had any social media or smartphones when they were elected. You know, you're elected junior year for the senior year. Now, by senior year, we did give them a smartphone with very limited use and apps and such to kind of slowly have them learn to use this tool before they went off to college. But, you know, they couldn't have suffered too much socially if they were both 
both elected senior class president. That's very hopeful uh, information, Maureen. And, and it's true, but unfortunately, many, I would say the majority of parents across the United States have abdicated that kind of responsibility. And ha- when they hand the phones, these phones over to their very young children, I see children who are six or seven years old uh, that have complete access to the internet. Uh, and I see this all the time. This is normal where I live. It is so sad when you listen to Billie Eilish in her interview and and you see the effects on her. I mean, the way that she, you know, hides her body and, and, and makes herself ugly on purpose. It's a very it's a very telling thing about how she views herself like she if, if, if she's at 11 as she says at 11 years old she starts consuming tons of pornography highly violent pornography is how she described it first I've never seen I've never seen such a thing highly violent pornography I'd be afraid to see it at 52 I can't imagine at 11 what it does to your brain and how it completely disturbs your ideas about normal relations between men and women or with each other you know I imagine there's no necessarily men and women <laughs> in the pornography world and yeah how horrible I'm so glad Billie Eilish spoke up about it you know another thing besides pornography is the gender ideology that's being pushed on all these platforms and now so many kids every day more and more statistics are, are coming out are saying that they're LGBTQ plus plus I don't know what the the, the the rest of the alphabet soup is these days but that's that's because they're watching it online It's exactly right. And that's where the social contagion is coming from. It's coming in large part from social media, from these YouTube influencers. And again, it's not just pornography, it's body image issues, eating disorder, you know, glorification of drunk driving and drug use. It's all kinds of things. Even Tourette's, even Tourette's syndrome, like all sorts of neurologic and psychiatric issues are being pushed on these websites and people and and children are picking them up and, and, and they're becoming real issues on children that should never have been exposed to these things. And we know from the Surgeon General and from all of the you know, pediatric medical associations that there is a real mental health crisis amongst our young people. And a lot of that has been attributed to the effects of the school shutdowns during the pandemic. But what happened during the school shutdowns? They were put online. Kids were put online. They had virtual school mm-hmm. and unlimited Internet access. And no doubt this is part of the cause here because kids were spending inordinate amounts of time online and exposed to all sorts of harmful influences. Well, you know, we have to talk about this week. This week, we had to talk about some dark things, (laughs) dark things like pornography and what's going to happen with Roe v. Wade. If Roe v. Wade is overturned in, in a couple in a couple months, in a few months, um, but I think that these are all important topics because uh, we have to be aware of what's going on, and it's better to better to be aware and and prevent things in our own families and with our friends and our neighbors as much as we can um, than just be reacting. So thank you to my wonderful co-hostesses Maureen and, and Ashley. Thank you, f- ladies, for for joining me this week. It's it's a real pleasure. Great to be on Thanks, with you Gracie. today, Gracie. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And next up, we have a very special guest, my very own husband, Dr. Stephen Christie. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Glad to be with you. This is a very first for our show for Conversations. Although my co-hostess, Lee Sneed, um, did interview her husband, Carter Sneed, earlier. But for me, this is a first, the first time my husband is on. I talk a lot about you, Steve, on my show because I talk about all sorts of personal things. And I've told our listeners about your conversion, um, about the fact that we have five children. I don't think I've ever told them that you have been writing this really fabulous book about being ready with your best pro-life arguments to pro-choice questions. So tell us about your book. Tell us what it's called, how it's set up, and why you wrote it. Sure. It's called Speaking for the Unborn, 30-Second Pro-Life Rebuttals to Pro-Choice Arguments. And I guess why I wrote the book, I guess the pithy answer is that there are over 62 million reasons why I wrote the book. Over 62 million abortions in the U.S. alone since Roe in 1973. And that's uh, more than the populations of California and New York combined. Mm -hmm. And if what's being aborted isn't alive and it's not human, then it really doesn't matter. But if those abortions are of living human beings, then we've killed 62 million children. And I guess that's why I wrote the book. I also wrote the book because the pro-life cause is a winning one. I really think that. And we have to be able to articulate our powerful and, and persuasive reasons to anyone who asks. And most people in our movement know that they say, you know, abortion is wrong and that's wonderful, but it's not good enough to sustain a movement. So I, I'd stumbled across so many wonderful pro-life arguments and thought it was time to organize them, to compile them, to edit them, and then to present them in a user-friendly format in a way that you can actually use them in real life circumstances. So I have a copy of the book here in front of me and I hope our listeners will go on Amazon and pre-order. It'll be ready and it'll be coming out in February officially, but it's already available for pre-order. And what I love about this book is that it it collects all the major pro-choice arguments that we hear all the time. We hear it from friends, from neighbors. Uh, these things come up when you're standing in an elevator or with uh, the parents of friends of your children. And we keep hearing the same ones over and over again. And we're not always prepared with a ready answer. And I do find, as, as Stephen says, that we have sometimes just a few seconds to make our pitch and to change somebody's mind and somebody's heart. And there's so many times when somebody says something to us, uh, you know, challenges us in a very typical way that a pro-choice person would challenge a pro-life person. And what we wish we had said just doesn't come out and we think about it later after we, we sit around and we say, oh, no, why didn't I remember that? So this book collates all these wonderful arguments and concentrates them in a way that we can really learn them. Do you think that's a fair statement, Steve? I do. I think there's a couple of unique things about the book. The, the structure and scope of the book itself and the perspective from which I, I write, I think, is unique. And the book, again, it's I think it's the only handbook of its kind that presents to every pro-choice argument, as you said, a 30-second rebuttal. They're compelling, they're concise, and again, they're, they're put together in a way that you can actually take them with you into real-life discussions. You don't have to memorize them word for word, but if you practice them, you learn them sort of as a bullet point, so you can actually recall them and present them when you're when you're in a discussion. That, I think, is pretty unique. The second thing is, again, I write from a sort of unusual perspective. You know, as a physician like you, I know science and embryology. As a lawyer, I've studied the law and the Constitution. As a father of five, I know a bit about babies in pregnancy. And as a husband married to you for over 25 years now, I appreciate the challenges women like you face and the struggle to balance the demands of your career and your family life. But I think what's interesting about me, what perhaps makes me most qualified to speak, and that's reflected in, in this book is the fact that I spent the first 30 years of my life as a secular pro-choice liberal. Mm -hmm. So I know exactly what, why, and how the other side thinks about abortion. Having lived you know, in both those worlds, I have a fairly unique vantage point to analyze this today. I, I like to say when I was pro-choice, I learned the arguments. But when I became pro-life, I learned the truth. And this book really is that 
truth. Well, I can vouch for that. It is true. When I married Stephen, he was pro-choice. Although I have to say, we never actually spoke about it, did we, Stephen? I don't think we ever did. I think you were f- no. too afraid to ask me. No, I wasn't afraid. I, I think I assumed everybody was like me and was crazy to have, was just dying to get married and have babies, which we did. We got married and immediately had babies. And Thank I God don't, I listened to you. Well, I don't think we ever talked about it. <laughs> I think it just happened, which I think is fabulous. I'm so glad that we took it that way, sort of in a very natural way. But anyway, as the years went on, I did I did realize you, you weren't very firm in your ideas about the sanctity of human life. And to be fair, I don't think anyone had ever said anything to you about it. I mean, in all your all your upbringing and your, your years of formation, nobody had ever sat you down and said, let's talk of, you know, let's have a philosophical talk about um babies and and human beings and when a when a person becomes a person and who's a person and who should be protected is that a fair statement absolutely I grew up in a secular progressive household i attended a very pricey progressive private high school you know it was completely understood and accepted that educated and sophisticated thinkers were obviously pro choice i don't even know why we thought it was obvious but but it was obvious to us and conversely you know pro life people like you were and don't don't be offended my wife here i i had thought growing up you know if you were pro life you were clearly uneducated you were not thinking you were backwards and probably you're an intolerant Jesus freak. Um, and even, you know, even when we began medical school, you know, if you'd asked me why I was pro-choice, I, I wouldn't have been able to art- articulate why. I might have thrown a cliche out of my body, my choice, or personal attack. And it was in medical school, you know, and I guess what changed me was if you had to put a word to it, it was the truth. You know, you and I studied science and life and embryology. Uh, and then we saw embryos and we saw fetuses. And, and as I guess as Shakespeare says, the truth will out. You know, we learned there's a definition of life and it's not a, a, a matter of philosophy or religion or politics. You know, it's a, what, is, what is a lie is a purely scientific question that science is fully answered. Stephen, this is something that I express a lot when when I speak to people about my, my profession as a doctor, uh, is that the truth and uh, the scientific truth and the philosophical or moral truth, they meet, they kiss, because they're, they don't oppose each other. And the more you study the, the marvels of the human body, the marvels of reproduction, of development, the more you understand the, the greatness of, of the process and how interfering with that process is a terrible moral assault. Absolutely. And, but for, for a guy like me that grew up with just assuming that, that educated people were pro-choice, it, it was even more fundamental. It, it had to hit me like a, a ton of bricks on the head. And you you know the story, and I don't know if it's too long to tell. No, no, I, interview, I, I think I would love for you to tell the story of how you became pro-life. There was an actual moment that really affected me. So you and I, we were, you know, first year we were in our anatomy class, and there was a, an anteroom off the edge of the anatomy lab that had an, an abandoned area. We had an old cabinet covered in dust, and on the shelves were jars of formaldehyde and in the jars were babies of different ages, you know, embryos and fetuses of different stages of development and they were covered in dust. The lights were all burnt out and I remember looking at this cabinet. I was horrified at how irreverent these little babies were being displayed. Nobody obviously had seen this cabinet even in years. So the next day I I sort of hunted down our embryology professor who who I'm sure you remember who she was was a great professor and I confessed to her how deeply affected I was and I, I said by the way these babies were being displayed and I used the word babies and she grew agitated and angry immediately she literally yelled at me they're not babies they were never babies they were never alive they're nothing more than fetuses I mean she yelled at me and again Shakespeare shot into my head you know from from Hamlet the lady doth protest too much <laughs> you know that was it for me I you know that was a moment of truth and interesting so not only did I know the truth but I, I knew she knew the truth so it was a big moment for me I have to ask when our first children were born our very first child when you held him in your arms you must have also had that perfect certainty that what was happening a couple of days before inside 
inside me was nothing more nor less than this perfect human being that we had produced between us. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was a couple of years after our first, uh, after the, that first anatomy class in the embryology class. But, you know, of course, the, the miracle of birth will shock almost anybody who really wants to, to pay attention to it. Before you became a radiologist, you studied and trained as an obstetrician, as a gynecologist. That must have been another eye-opening thing when it comes to being pro-life. Well, absolutely. And, you know, delivering lots of you know, babies all the time obviously reminds you of what we're talking about. But when women are miscarrying, when you see embryos miscarried and fetuses miscarried, and you see them moving around, you see the reality of, uh, you know, the truth that you can't, you know, hide from the truth when it's in your hands, literally in your hands moving around. And I thank God that I had that conversion long before I, you know, years before I trained as an OBGYN, God forbid I'd ever, you know, been involved in, a, in an abortion procedure at all. Uh, I'd like to think I never would have, but, but thank God my conversion came before that experience. That's so true. I, I don't think in our training hospital here in Miami, the public hospital, I don't think abortion, I'm pretty sure abortions weren't permitted. I know I never heard of C one or, or having one done in the hospital? I think on occasion they were done off the record is my vague recollection. I, I, I didn't know who performed them and I never saw one perform. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm talking to my very own husband, Dr. Stephen Christie. He's a doctor and a lawyer and he's just written a new book. It's out for pre-order. You can order it now on Amazon to be delivered in the next couple weeks. And Stephen, and tell us the name of your book. Speaking for the Unborn, 30-Second Pro-Life Rebuttals to Pro-Choice Arguments. Before you wrote this book, you put a lot of thought into strategy because let me let me tell you how I see it and then you can tell me if I'm wrong or right. But the way I see it is when you became pro-life, you had a moment of real conversion where you suddenly saw the whole world in a different way and you were full of desire to make other people who were in your prior state understand so that they could make that same leap. And you found yourself thinking about strategy, correct? You know, having come from one world and joining the other, I, I sort of had an idea of how you go back and talk to the people that were in the world I used to be in. Mm -hmm. So so with respect to strategy, you know, I had to address where you speak, how you speak, and, and what you speak. So the where was realizing that most of us, including me, are not going to be a Ben Shapiro fighting it out in large public debates and arenas on college campuses. And, and very few of us will ever get to be in, in legislatures or in the court systems working. But but each of us does have a critical role to play. And, and our jobs are to open the hearts and minds of people we're going to encounter in the ordinary course of our daily lives with our friends and our families and our co-workers one heart at a time. And that's where we speak. And how we speak is also a part of my conversion process. No matter how heated the other side is, we always speak you know, charitably, intelligently, persuasively, we're clear, we're articulate, we're very brief. 30 seconds is the attention span we have. We're mindful that 25% of women we're speaking with have already had an abortion. And we always remember we're winning hearts. We're not winning arguments all the time. Sometimes you have to even lose the argument. And, and I've learned that the words that I always want to hear during a discussion go something like this. When somebody says to you, you know, that's interesting. I never really thought about it that way before. And for me, that's the sound of the heart opening to the truth. So that's the where and the how and the what is actually the words in the book. So that's the strategy, having come from one world, the pro-choice world, coming into the pro Wow, you know, that statistic you just gave about 25% of women having had an abortion, that's very shocking because it does, it should color the way we speak, right? So many of these women are, are suffering, whether they admit it or not. And so it's critically important that when we, when we talk to these women, we speak to them charitably with compassion. We don't, you know, the people screaming and yelling and, and, and these protests they have at these poor women, it's really unacceptable. These women need to know we're on their side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there are two, there, the baby dies in an abortion, but the woman dies too, and to a certain extent. Abortion destroys 
and degrades everything it touches, whether it's the, the mother, the baby, and the doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really sad thing that abortion is even thought of as a medical procedure, right? It's not, it doesn't improve anyone's life or health or promote well-being. You know, it's always rhetorical deception. So as we talk about, you know, women's health care somehow, that's women's health care or women's reproductive health care or reproductive rights. And you have to ask them, you know, when did, you know, when did tearing a child limb from limb or lethally injecting a living baby, taking it from its mother's womb, how did that ever become healthcare? Treating, we know what healthcare is, treating, treating the diabetic is healthcare. You know, setting a broken bone is healthcare. Performing open heart surgery is healthcare. Killing an, a living unborn child has nothing to do with healthcare. Again, we have to be clear about it. Hmm. Well, it's really good to hear a doctor being clear about it. For too long, we've allowed our, our profession to be hijacked by the pro-choice side. It's really sad. I hope that a lot of healthcare professionals are listening to this and resolving to stop that, to stop that from happening. So, Stephen, I want to give you, for our listeners' sake, I want to tell you some of my the, the pro-choice arguments that I encounter most commonly, and I'd like to hear your 30-second quick rebuttal, because I think they'll be very impressed. So, the one argument that I hear all the time is that abortion empowers women. Yeah, being brief, I always say, you know, that abortion has never empowered women, but it has empowered men. It has empowered men to use women for sexual pleasure without any long-term consequences. You know, it's normalized men's ability to use women, to exploit them, to manipulate them, to abuse, and then abandon women. So to say this somehow empowers women makes no sense to me. There you go. Pithy, short, and to the point. And, you know, that's the kind of answer that will make that person, if they don't stop and look at you and say, oh, I never thought about it that way, they'll say it to themselves later. I'm very sure. Okay, let me give you another one. My body, my choice, this is my body, I'm going to do what I want with my body. It's probably the most common argument we hear. And we can deal with both the my body and the by, and, and the my choice part. So when I speak about my body, I always, I agree with them. I say I fully support the, you know, the right of a woman to do whatever she wants with her own body. And then I say, I just don't believe she has the right to do whatever she wants to someone else's body. Mm-hmm. And a pregnancy always involves two bodies, sometimes more. And with respect to the my choice, I agree with them. Yes, a woman should have the right to choose. I agree. The choice she has, though, is not whether or not to kill her baby. It's whether or not to have sex in the first place. And if she chooses to have sex, she does so with the full knowledge that there's a possibility that she's going to create a new life living inside her. And it seems reasonable then for society to expect that woman who took that risk knowingly to live you know, temporarily without inconvenience, even real significant inconvenience, if the only alternative is killing a child. So I like to say I'm also very pro-choice with just one less choice than, than you. I believe you can choose abstinence, you can choose motherhood, or you can choose adoption. I just don't believe you can choose to kill your baby. You know, we say the right to swing your fist ends just before it touches my nose. <laughs> okay, how about this one? You are a man. You have no right to speak on this issue you get you have no uterus you get no opinion yeah this one i get a lot it's in today's you know social justice culture i I like to echo the words of martin luther king and abraham lincoln i I say it's cowardly and immoral to you know to permit anyone to silence you on critical moral issues based on your skin color or or your religion or your sex and i point out you don't you don't have to be black to fight slavery you don't have to be a jew to uh, oppose nazism you don't have to be a woman to oppose the killing of children and i say arguments to the contrary are bigoted they're racist and they're sexist and those words usually quiet people down from that attack. What about the idea that if I say that abortion is wrong, I'm saying abortion is just wrong for me. Who am I to tell other women that abortion is wrong for them too? Yeah, imposing beliefs. That's 
one of the classic arguments, and, and there's two things I usually say about this. Uh, you know, they like to say, you know, we shouldn't be imposing morality on other people, and, and, and that's just nonsense. You know, we all believe imposing morality, and we do it every day on critical moral issues, whether it's rape or child abuse or theft or murder. You know, we never rely on each individual's personal moral code to guide their actions. We say to the world, hey, rape and murder are repugnant, they're immoral, they're illegal, and if you do it, we're throwing you in jail. So imposing morality is something we do on every single member of society every single day. That's a clear argument. The one that's a little more interesting is when we have politicians who say, oh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm personally pro-life, but who am I to impose my views? And we just simply point out again that we all have a moral obligation to impose that morality on the rest of the world. Actions that are morally repugnant cannot be tolerated. And, and, you know, and the classic argument is when somebody says, you know, I'm personally anti-slavery. You know, I would never have a slave, but, you know, who am I to impose my views on you? If you want a slave or two, it's, it's okay. You know, if that's what you want to do, who am I to tell you not to do it? Obviously, it's, it's being a little snarky, but it points out the fact that we impose our morality and, and we're obligated to impose morality on critical moral, moral issues. It's what we do. One of the things that people often argue is that babies are better off dead. Now, when I get that, babies that are unwanted are better off dead. When I get that answer, I, I counter with our adopted daughter, who is, is a baby that many would have considered better off dead. What's your argument for the better off dead? Again, I, I, I say it's I, I say it simply. I, I say it's never an act of love or fairness or compassion to kill somebody simply because they're not wanted. You know, how can how can killing an unborn child, you know, literally dismembering it while it's in the womb ever be for the child's own benefit? I said it's the most uncompassionate, the most unkind, and the most unloving thing you can do to a child, you know, to kill them. Well, the other way to say it is what you tell somebody who says that is is they believe it's better to eliminate the sufferer than to eliminate the suffering. Instead of improving foster care improving the adoption process, including the social needs that people have, we should just kill the child. Mm -hmm. And uh, killing a child is never an act of kindness. Stephen, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I am very proud, not not just that you've written a fabulous book, which, by the way, I have to, let me brag a little bit, is covered in the most amazing endorsements from people who know their stuff, like Bishop Robert Barron, for instance, who highly endorses this book. But I'm also really proud that you were able to make this this enormous change in your life. Very few people as adults, well, maybe not very few, maybe it's more common than we think, but it's really beautiful that a person would make such an utter change in their, their philosophy, their, their moral underpinnings as to turn 180 degrees and then, and then decide that it's so important that they want to change other people's hearts too. Well, that's very kind of you, but living with a very strong, very Catholic woman, uh, <laughs> maybe is how that happened. Oh, don't don't you act know, like you, I made you. <laughs> you know, there's no. You know, there's one of the point of the book. I don't know if um, we're out of time here. That, that I think is really important. As I make a big fuss with people, I say, and the opportunity to defend your pro-life position is pretty common. It very often arises unexpectedly, and you might only get one chance to, to make your case. So we, we have these rebuttals, and we went through a lot of the rebuttals. But sometimes you get a chance just to make your argument, and if you can make a, an articulate and compassionate and respectful and persuasive argument in 30 seconds, you have a chance to win hearts. My summary goes like this. I'm pro-life because I'm pro-science. There's overwhelming scientific consensus that life begins at conception. And I'm pro-life because social justice begins in the womb. Because every living human being is entitled to the most fundamental of human rights, the right itself. Because being a burden on someone is never justification for killing. And I'm pro-life because I'm pro-woman. Abortion degrades women. 
treating their fertility as a defect and enabling men to use and abandon women at their most vulnerable. Abortion never empowers women, only the men who wish to exploit them. And I'm pro-life because I'm against violence. Abortion is not only immoral, but it's an act of extreme violence against the most vulnerable. And I'm pro-life because of the visible evidence. Ultrasound and MRI now clearly show the world what's moving inside a woman's body, a living baby. And lastly, I'm pro-life because of objective morality. If abortion is the killing of an unborn child, then it's immoral and cowardly to remain silent. That's why I'm pro-life. And then I always ask, why aren't you? Well, that's quite perfect, Stephen. And I want to thank you very much for this first time on Conversations with Consequences, the first time my husband is on, and I hope you'll be back again. Can I say one last word before I leave? Yes. All right, this is something I, I hope, as a host, you've never heard a guest say to you ever on your show. I love you very much, Gracie, and I'm lucky to be your husband. <laughs> I love That's you, it. too. <laughs> I'll see you at home. Bye-bye. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in this Sunday's Gospel, when we will encounter Jesus preaching in his hometown synagogue. He was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he read from Isaiah 61, the passage describing the work of the eventual Messiah. He would be filled with the Spirit of the Lord, anointed to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to the oppressed, to help the blind see, and to announce a jubilee year. After reading that passage, Jesus very dramatically handed the scroll back to the synagogue attendant and sat down, as all the eyes in the room were locked on him, and he gave a shocking one-sentence homily. Today, this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, in other words, the Messiah has come and he's speaking to you now. Today, the long-awaited one, whom you have eagerly been, been anticipating for more than a millennium, is here. The words of Isaiah's prophecy were being unveiled before their eyes. The Spirit of the Lord, who had come down upon Jesus in a visible way at his baptism in the Jordan, as we celebrated two weeks ago, was still very much upon Jesus. He was proclaiming the gospel to the poor and lowly, to those who are humble enough to receive it, all throughout Galilee, and making them lavishly rich with the treasure of God's holy revelation. He was restoring sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, vigor to cripple, health to the moribund, and would soon even be restoring life to the dead. He was proclaiming liberty to those captive to sin through his merciful forgiveness, was letting those oppressed by the devil go free through exorcisms. In all of this, he was proclaiming a year acceptable to the Lord, a jubilee, which was a reset button that God wanted the Jews to press every 50 years to reestablish their bonds with him and particularly with each other through charity. All of the aspects of this messianic prophecy and all the others, Jesus was actualizing before their eyes. Jesus wants continuously to fulfill sacred scripture in our hearing, before our eyes, in our minds, hearts, and existence. He wants to preach the good news to us and desires that we sufficiently be poor in spirit to receive it, recognizing how much we need that gift. He's come to set us free from captivity and oppression, especially to slavery, to our addictions and sins. He's come to help us recognize our blind spots and recover our sight so that we might first see him in prayer and sacraments and then learn how to see all things in his light. He wants to proclaim not just a year acceptable to the Lord, but a lifetime and eternity pleasing to God and joyous to us. He wants, in other words, to engage us in a consequential conversation of love and life that knows no end, 
planting the seed of the word of God within us and helping us to bear great fruit, to let his word take on our flesh and be fulfilled in and by us. This Sunday we will celebrate for the third time a new and important annual feast, the Sunday of the Word of God, which Pope Francis established on September 30th, 2019, to accentuate the importance that sacred scripture is meant to have in the faith, prayer, and lives of believers. Pope Francis announced it intentionally on September 30th, which is the Feast of St. Jerome, the famous translator of the Bible from the Greek and Hebrew into Latin, then the common language of the people. St. Jerome is famous for emphasizing ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ, that unless we're familiar with what Jesus said and did in the Gospel, how he fulfilled all the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament in people's hearing, how the Apostles proclaimed him, we don't really know him. St. Jerome learned that lesson the hard way. As a brilliant young student traveling to study from the great masters of his age, he got deathly ill with something that took the life of his companions. He had been up until that point a lukewarm Christian, far more passionate about Greco-Roman literature than the faith. During his sickness, he had a dream in which he appeared before the judgment seat of Christ. When he professed that he was a Christian, Jesus replied that he was rather a Ciceronian, because he knew far more about Cicero in his writings than he did about Christ in his teachings. It struck Jerome to the core. He didn't know Christ because he didn't know the scriptures. After he awoke and recovered, he resolved to pour his mind, heart, and time into the study and diffusion of the Word of God. In establishing the Sunday of the Word of God, Pope Francis expressed a hope that St. Jerome's example of converted zeal will be contagious, that each of us will grow in religious and intimate familiarity with the sacred scriptures, appreciate the inexhaustible riches contained in that constant dialogue between the Lord and his people, experience anew how the risen Lord opens for us the treasury of his word and enables us to proclaim its unfathomable riches before the world, and marked by this decisive relationship with the living word, grow in love and faithful witness. I'd like to underline two points. The first is about celebrating the word of God as the great treasure it is. Back in 2008, Pope Benedict hosted in the Vatican a synod of bishops on the word of God and the life and mission of the church. A bishop from Yelgava, Latvia, named Anton Justs, gave an intervention I've never forgotten. He described a priest, Father Victors, who in the first days of the communist occupation had been arrested for possessing the Bible and commanded to step on it. Instead, he knelt and kissed it, for which he was condemned to ten years of hard labor in Siberia. When he returned a decade later as an emaciated witness to Scripture's inestimable value, he celebrated Mass with his people. After proclaiming the gospel, he lifted up the evangeliarium, said verbum domini, and kissed once more the word of God. He and the people cried profusely with gratitude to God. And Bishop Utzt said that Father Victors wasn't alone in his testimony. During the Soviet era, he said, no religious books, no holy scriptures, no catechisms were allowed to be printed. The reasoning was, if there's no printed word of God, there'll be no religion. So our Latvian people did what the first century Christians did. They learned the passages of the Holy Scriptures by heart. Specifically with regard to celebration, Bishop Utz recounted, Still today in Latvia there's an oral tradition alive. We stand on the shoulders of our martyrs to proclaim the word of God. Our grandchildren remember their grandfathers and grandmothers who died for their faith. They want to be in their turn heroes of faith. 
In Latvia, we proclaim the living word of God. We go in the processions and on pilgrimages. We sing songs and we pray and say, this is the word of God for which our grandparents died. A people learning scripture by heart, taking the Bible on pilgrimage, proclaiming proudly the word of God and seeking to be heroes and witness to it. This is what the Catholic Church is meant to be. This is the type of faith and celebration Pope Francis, by establishing the Sunday of the Word of God, is trying to catalyze. The second point is about learning sacred scripture. About a decade ago, I happened to meet a priest from Cleveland at Green Airport in Providence, Rhode Island. I invited him to lunch. When the cashier asked if there'd be one check or two, I said one and gave my credit card. Father Bob immediately interjected, Sirach says we should go Dutch. I stared at him quizzically, but retorted, Jesus calls us to love one another as he loves us. And the Last Supper wasn't Dutch. I'm paying. But when we got to the table, immediately after grace, I asked whether he had invented the quotation from Sirach. Very earnestly and enthusiastically replied, not at all. And he pulled a worn Bible from his backpack and amazingly opened it to the exact page in the book of Sirach where it says, not to be ashamed to share the expenses of a business or journey. Sirach 42.3 Blown away and frankly filled with a holy envy by his command of scripture, I asked how he had come to know the word of God so well. He told me he had made a promise the day of his diaconal ordination to read the entire Bible once a year and that he had been faithful to that promise. After 24 years, he told me with a smile, you get to know what Sirach says about restaurant bills. I asked him how long it takes to read the whole Bible in a year. He said it takes cumulatively only about 75 hours, or 12 to 15 minutes a day. Since that encounter, I've tried to emulate Father Bob's commitment to reading the Bible each year and have encouraged many others to join us. 12 to 15 minutes a day can change your life. There are so many books and smartphone applications that make reading the Bible in a year easier, intelligently varying the passages to help one understand it better than if one just read it from cover to cover. And Father Mike Schmitz has a very powerful and helpful podcast, Bible in a Year, which has helped hundreds of thousands enter more deeply into the treasure of the Word of God. I'd encourage you to find and use one of these great means to enrich yourself each day more and more with the treasure of God's holy word. The same Jesus who entered his hometown synagogue on the Sabbath is entering our churches this Sunday. He'll speak to us live as the gospel is read. He will come to teach us, heal us, console us, be with us, strengthen us, and send us out. As Father Victor's and the faithful Latvians under communism heroically demonstrated, the Bible is not a dead document, but a living word. Since the Word of God is not principally a book or a series of books, but a person, an incarnate Word, whom we encounter through the Bible's sacred text. That's the one who continually fulfills Scripture in our hearing. He's the one who has the words of eternal life. As we celebrate the Sunday of the Word of God, let us respond to that gift with love, enthusiasm, and gratitude, saying, Thanks be to God. And praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 